All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. Uh, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, again, I just want to welcome you. Uh, I also just wanted to say thank you to everybody who... Um, in, in any capacity, was a part of serving at kids' camp this week. Um, you know, you see, you see many uh, of our volunteers with these blue T-shirts on. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to uh, to those of you that were here. Uh, well, it wasn't here, but at the at Las Flores Elementary all week, or if you were there for just a day or just a couple hours, or you helped to set up, or you were praying behind the scenes. Thank you so much. Um, I really believe that uh, one of the most important things that we ever do as a church is serve these children. And so thank you so much for being a part of that. And thank you to those of you who just brought your kids and, uh, and allowed us to have a great, great time with them. Um, shifting gears a little bit, let me inter- invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a... Um, a blue Bible on the ground um, near you, and if you're looking in one of those Bibles, you can find Revelation chapter 5 on page 1030, or you're also welcome to uh, simply listen as I read that passage in just a moment. Uh, if, you're, if you're joining us for Kids Camp and you haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, we are in the middle of a, a series in the book of Revelation, and so we are going to uh, keep going. Uh, this morning, we're actually going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5 this morning and again next week. Uh, Let me ask you to stand with me this morning. You know, if you go to a a baseball game, we stand for the national anthem. And if you go to a wedding, we stand when the bride uh, enters. And when we go to church for 2,000 years, Christians have stood when the word of God is being read because something important is about to happen. So listen as I read from Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John writes this. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
Worthy is he to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you, in this next few moments, be with us? Would you help us to have ears that hear, eyes that see, minds that comprehend, and hearts that love? Would you form Jesus more fully in us, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, one of our family's uh, favorite traditions is typically it happens on a Friday night at the end of a long week when everybody's kind of tired and uh, it's nothing terribly complicated, but we just call it family movie night. You know, it's uh, we gather together, we eat in front of the TV and we watch a movie. Uh, the problem is deciding on what movie to watch every week. And so we've got four kids and so in a family of six, you can never make everybody happy. And so several, a couple weeks ago, uh, kind of over my objections to the contrary, we watched a movie called National Treasure. Now, I don't know if you've seen National Treasure. It's a movie starring Nicolas Cage, uh, who is hilarious, even though he's not trying to be. Um, <laughs> but, but basically, the plot of National Treasure is that a long, long time ago, uh, there was this kind of cabal of the founding fathers of America that hid these national treasures um, around the country and um, left clues kind of in plain sight to, uh, to help somebody one day discover them. And um, for example, uh, at one point in the story, Nicolas Cage has to steal the Declaration of Independence because the next clue is kind of on the back of the actual copy of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, later in the series, he's, uh, he's breaking into um, you know, the Mount Rushmore because there's this secret hidden room apparently uh, behind, behind Mount Rushmore. And it's, it's one of these movies, it's just, it's, um, it's over the top, uh, it's silly, and to my shock and horror, I actually really loved it. Um, um, and, and I found myself for a long time afterwards, afterwards thinking, why do I like this movie so much? I know it's not good. Um, and I think that the reason that we love movies like National Treasure, and we, even when we don't even believe in them, we are drawn to things like conspiracy theories, is uh, because something in us uh, longs to believe that behind the events of life, there is somebody who actually has a plan that knows what they're doing. Uh, behind the scenes of human history, uh, there is somebody that has a plan that is dotting the seemingly random uh, the, the events of our lives, the events of our lives that we sometimes wonder, are they, are they just random? Are they insignificant? Do they mean anything? Behind all of that, we long to believe that there is somebody that is holding it all together. And so even when we know that they are false, we find ourselves intrigued by stories like this or conspiracy theories that hold out the hope that, that there could be somebody who actually knows what's going on in this world, who knows 
what the events of world history and the events of our lives actually mean. In Revelation chapter 5, what we see is a, a glimpse of not just a silly made-up story or not some conspiracy theory, but what we see is the true picture of the one who sits behind um, kind of the curtain of human history as it was. Uh, not separated from us by, by millions of years or millions of miles, but the almighty God uh, present with us now and yet not visible to our eyes sits enthroned at the center of the universe and he is the one that is holding all things together. On a Sunday morning in 96 AD, the Apostle John, who was one of the leaders or pastors in the early church after the death and resurrection of Jesus, on a Sunday morning, John, uh, living in exile uh, in an island in the Mediterranean Sea, gets up and goes to church. And as he's in church worshiping, he has this vision of uh, ultimate reality, of what God is really doing in the world. And he records this for us in the book of Revelation. And what we see is that John paints a picture for us of what he saw so that we might live faithfully in a world that so often appears to be completely out of control. I remember as a little kid um, when we would go on a trip and uh, you know, sitting at the airport, and I think every little kid does this at some point, where it, it doesn't seem like when you get to the airport when you're a kid, you're there for hours before anything happens. And so you go and you kind of post up by the window and just watch the comings and goings of, you know, there's trucks going all over the place and there's those little, you know, smaller trucks, I guess, hauling baggage and there's planes coming and going and there's people moving and it just looks like uh, chaos, doesn't it? Well, in the book of Revelation, it's as though John was inviting us to come up into the control tower where we see from the perspective of the one seated above everything that there is meaning and purpose and order to this world, even though it doesn't often appear that way. Revelation 5 is such good news. Revelation 5 is this breathtaking, uh, breathtakingly beautiful picture of what God is really doing. And if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what he's saying, this, this chapter of the Bible has the potential to change everything about your life because it will make sense of your life. In this chapter, this chapter shows us that all of the secrets of human history and of spiritual conflicts center on God himself. And he has a plan to fulfill every single detail of your life and bring meaning and purpose to it all, even as the whole universe is filled with his glory. Does that sound like a staggeringly grandiose enough statement? That is what is going on in this passage here. I know it's a grand claim, but if you'll, if you'll stick with me for a few minutes, I just want to walk you through this passage and help you to see what John saw. Because I know as I read it, it probably sounded like a bunch of foreign sounding words, strange images. But if you can understand what this passage is talking about, it will make sense of your life and everything else. Because what this passage shows us, uh, well, there are three things that I want you to see in this passage. There's three problems this passage solves for us. 
And the first uh, problem that this passage solves for us is this passage solves for us the problem of human history. Okay, now you're probably thinking, I didn't actually know that there was a problem with human history. It seems to be progressing along all right on its own. But the problem of human history is this. It's the problem of purpose or meaning. What does it all mean? You know, the question, what is the meaning of life, has been asked so many times that it feels a little bit like a cliché. Uh, to us now, doesn't it? What is the meaning of life? The question uh, still haunts us even as we kind of roll our eyes at it. I think the reality is that when we argue over history, uh, what we're arguing about is not so much the facts of what happened so much as we're arguing about what they mean. Or another way to say that is that the, the question of history, the problem of history is not so much the what, it's the why. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, this is, you know, a, a tragic example. But when a gunman walks into a school and opens fire, as happens way too often in our world, in our country, doesn't it? Of course it's a horrible tragedy. Of course it's unthinkable. But what is even worse is in those instances when the gunman is killed or takes his own life in the process. And the, the victims and their families and the wider world is kind of left asking the question, but why did this even happen? I mean, it's, it, it's horrible to even imagine that happening uh, in, in a way that would affect any of us personally. And yet knowing who did it and why they did it at least gives you somebody to blame. And when the question of why is, is, is answered with just a resounding silence, it's more than we can bear. It's almost more than we can bear. Life without meaning is unbearable. And this is what's happening in Revelation chapter 5. Eight times in this chapter, uh, John talks about this scroll. There is this scroll, a piece of rolled up papyrus that is in the right hand of God Almighty seated on the throne. And the scroll becomes the kind of controlling image for the rest of the book of Revelation. And it says that this scroll, did you notice this? It says the scroll had writing on both the front and the back side of the scroll. Now, in the ancient world, there was not paper, uh, and so they would write on a, a scroll would have been made out of kind of papyrus reeds that had been mashed together and glued, and the way that that process uh, well, was done, it left a smooth side on one side and kind of this bumpy uh, side on the back that wasn't good for writing on. And so scrolls would never be written on both sides. And yet this is telling us that this scroll was written on both uh, within and on the back. And what it's saying is that it is completely full. And when it's saying that the, the scroll is completely full, what, it, what, what it's saying is this, that on this scroll is contained the entire record of the, hu of the events of human history as they unfold, along with God's purpose for them. Does that make sense? The scroll contains the complete record of the events of human history as they unfold in real time, along with God's purpose or the meaning for which God allows, or, uh, allows them to come to pass. The scroll contains... Um, both the, all the events and the secrets of God's purposes for them, 
This scroll contains the answers to life's kind of biggest questions in general. What is the meaning of life? Uh, this scroll contains the uh, answers to you know the, the numbers for every winning lottery ticket and the, uh, the location of everything that goes into the dryer but never seems to come back out of it. It contains the, uh, the largest events of history and their meaning, but also the most intimate details of my life and your life as well. It contains the secret of God's intention to make sense out of every event in history. It contains uh, the sense that God will, in his justice, make everything right one day. But there's a problem. There's a problem with the scroll because it says that the scroll is sealed with seven seals, a wax stamp. You know, a king would have put this kind of wax glob to seal, uh, to seal it and then impressed his signet ring. And, you know, maybe if it was a really important document, it would be sealed with two seals. But this seal is, uh, scroll is sealed with seven seals, seven the number of completion in, in, in the Bible. And so it's saying this, this seal, the scroll is perfectly and completely sealed. And an angel shouts to all the world with a loud voice to find someone who is worthy to open the scroll and open it up and read it and to help us make sense of our lives. And no one is found in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is no one, there is no woman, there is no man, there is no creature that is worthy to break the seals and to read the scroll and to kind of unearth the secret uh, intention for human history. We, um, when John realizes this, he begins to weep. <laughs> he, begins to, he begins to weep bitterly. Now, why is John weeping? Now, I would suggest to you that it is not simply because he is just so stinking curious about what's in that scroll. But if that scroll is not opened, it's like the, 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 the meaning to every event. You know, uh, uh, when bad things happen to us, we ask the question, why? It doesn't seem to occur to us to ask the same question when good things unexpectedly happen to us, though we should ask that. Why do good things happen to us? Why do bad things happen to us? What does my life mean? All of those questions are going to be unanswered if this scroll is not opened. And so John begins to weep because life is unbearable without meaning and purpose. We understand this, I think, in some way because we increasingly live in a culture that has uh, lost its sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, We're even cynical about uh, the idea that there is some overarching telos, some overarching end or goal or purpose for human history. And yet the reality of the world that we live in betrays the fact that we have to have purpose in order to live where do I belong? What uh, is my best life? Uh, what do I believe? What should I be doing with my life? We cannot live without answers to those questions. We have lost a sense of purpose or meaning as a culture. And the results are striking. I read something in the last week that, that just utterly shocked me. Um, statistics after statistics coming out that basically says that uh, Americans are more lonely and isolated than we have ever been in human history. You know, we, we, we have technology that allows us to remain connected constantly, 
and yet we are not more uh, connected and more joyful and more fulfilled in life. We are actually more isolated and and more lonely. In the years between uh, 2006 and 2016, suicide rates for those between the ages of 10 and 7 rose by 70%. Think about that. Children, teenagers, suicide rate rises by 70%. In 2018, just recently, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reported that the expected lifespan of the average American had declined for the third straight year in a row. The last time the average life expectancy for Americans went down three years in a row was 100 years ago, from 2015, or from 1915 to 1918, when over a million people died in World War I, and at the same time, 675,000 people were killed as a result of a flu pandemic in the United States. And the last time the American life expectancy went down three years in a row was in the middle of a war. But it's happening again now. Why? Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, said, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. But we are experiencing the inverse of that situation. We take away the why for living, and any how or any what becomes almost unbearable. And so that is why John weeps, because... He is looking at the possibility of human history coming to a culmination and being left with simply a question mark. How can the ultimate questions about the meaning and purpose of life, the why of your life and my life, simply go unanswered? And when John realizes that there is no one who can make things right, he is overcome. And as he begins to mourn, one of the elders, these angelic beings that is there with him in the throne room of God, grabs him and says, don't worry, it's okay. And he tells them to look, and this is where we see the second problem that we see in this passage, the second solution to a problem in this passage, and that is the problem of redemption or the problem of forgiveness. Verse 5 says this. says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, don't worry. There's one who is worthy to open this scroll and to read its contents and to bring meaning and purpose and justice into uh, human history. And he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a reference back to Genesis 41, where foreseeing the one who would one day come and be strong and fierce and triumphant in fighting the enemies of God's people is described uh, as a lion, as a lion. Uh, The root of David is a reference to Isaiah 11, and it's indicating that this one who would come one day to make all things right uh, would come from the lineage of King David, the... the, uh, the Jewish king. And so uh, this picture of the lion, the tribe of Judah, it's a picture of strength. Uh, You know, the lion is the the king of the jungle. When the lion roars, all other voices are silenced. He's the one who can break the seals. He's the one that can open the scroll. He's the one that can bring into reality uh, the question of meaning and purpose and justice in the world. He's the victorious conqueror. And so the elder says to John, don't worry, 
There's a lion. He's the one with power. He will make everything right. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? And I wonder if, if you're tracking with me enough to, to kind of see what the problem is. It, it, it's a little bit amazing that John, as he's weeping, and the elder says, don't weep, there's a lion, and he can open the scroll, that John doesn't begin to weep even more, because the problem of human history is that if God is going to make everything right, and he is going to right every wrong, then, like, that's a problem for me <laughs> and for you. If God is going to repay every wrong justly, then no one in this room would be left standing. If he's going to bring justice against the wrongs of the world, then what does that mean for me and for you when we have been complicit in those wrongs, when we have ignored the cries of the oppressed, when we have uh, cared more about our comfort, our reputation, uh, than the needs of our community or the good of our community when we have uh, disciplined our children in anger. When we have lied to save face, we could go on and on and on. In other words, if the purposes of God are to be unfolded in strength, how can the purposes of God not be unfolded against me as well? <laughs> that's, that's a problem. <laughs> What, 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 what can history mean if the solution is going to be that God will one day open the scroll and every one of us will be leveled because the just God cannot let injustice go? So there's this image of overwhelming strength and John looks, uh, he turns to look and what he, see change, what he sees changes everything about the world, and if you understand what John sees when he looks, it will change everything about your life as well. Because John hears, the elder says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this image of strength, but then he turns and looks, and what he sees seated in the middle of the throne is the lamb standing as though he had been slain. Slaughtered is really the word. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He sees not the strength of a lion, but he sees a little lamb, Mary's little lamb that has been slaughtered with its throat cut. Okay, so here's the problem. How can God deal with you and me graciously? How can God forgive you and me and still be a God of justice? Um. We like the idea of forgiveness, don't we, when, it's, when I'm the one being forgiven. Like when I'm driving my car, I think everybody else is wrong, <laughs> but any mistake I make should be forgiven. <laughs> and it is the same in less trivial areas of life, too. We almost have the sense that we deserve to be forgiven, but we have a very, very hard time forgiving anybody else. But you see what the problem is? Imagine that you have a friend. Imagine you have a child who has been really, really wronged, okay? Like, truly wronged, and uh, there's a trial, and the evidence has been presented, and the jury brings back a guilty verdict, the perpetrator has been identified and convicted. 
and the judge comes to the sentencing phase of the trial and says, I'm just going to let him go. He would wail at the injustice. How can a just judge let the guilty go free? That would not be justice. So here's the question. How can you and I receive grace from God without God giving up on his justice? Or another way, how can history make any sense if God doesn't make maintain a sense of justice on the one hand, but how can history make any sense if God is not true to who he is as a God of love? Okay, you with me? Understand the problem? What this passage is showing us is there is one place that the love of God and the justice of God met perfectly, and that is at the cross of Jesus, where the lion of the tribe of Judah becomes the lamb of God who is slain to take away the sins of the world. It's this breathtaking image. The wonder of the cross is that as Jesus hangs on the cross, God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving, for it's on the cross that God lays on his own son all of the war, all of the oppression, all of the anger, all of the lies, all of the betrayal, all of the pain that we have inflicted on each other for time immemorial. God lays it all on Jesus. God takes it upon himself on the cross. And it's on the cross that we see the perfect love of God because he allowed his son Jesus to pay the penalty that we owed. It's on the cross that God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving. John Newton, the uh, hymn writer and pastor, wrote this in his song, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. He said, Let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. When you see the lamb who is the lion, and understand that the strength of God has become God's strength to absorb your sin upon himself and give you his love in return. When you see the lion who is the lamb, grace and justice are merged together and you will know the smile of God. The smile of God. See, the world cannot make sense without love and justice. But if you hear the lion and you look and find that he is the lamb, then you'll find that the God of the universe has drawn near to you in a way that you can actually survive, in a way that you can actually know him, that you can love him. And knowing that will transform the way that you live, will transform everything about your life, but it'll, it, really what it does is it transforms your relationship with suffering. Because if at the heart of reality is a God who suffers rather than inflict blame, uh, exact revenge upon us, well, that has to change. Like, we just run from suffering, don't we? And yet I've talked to people so many times as we sit and talk and, you know, cry together often, who tell stories of horrible things that have happened to them, spouses getting sick and passing away, just, you know, suffering. And yet who say, at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade it for anything because God has brought so much good through this. You don't have to live in ignorance either about the sin in your own life 
or the suffering that you experience or the larger questions about God's justice in the world, but neither will you collapse in despair or sort of kind of pharisaically call out the fault in other people while casually (coughs) ignoring it in yourself. Thirdly, finally, I want you to see this. The future is joyous. The future is joyous. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 says this. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And it says that they sang a new song. And what I want you to see is this, that true joy is found at the feet of the Lamb. True joy in life is found at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to come back and, and take another pass at Revelation 5 next week because there, there's so much that we need to see about what this tells us about the way that worship changes us. But what I want you to see this morning is this. When heaven sees that the lion is the lamb, heaven explodes in worship. Heaven explodes in joy. Why? Uh, Well, have you ever noticed this about your life? Have you ever noticed that you can't truly enjoy something until you praise it? Uh, I mean, this happens in so many simple, obvious ways. Like when, when I see a great gif, I can't wait until the moment that I get to share that with somebody else. <laughs> you know, every good meal is best enjoyed. Like, one of the worst things you could, uh, that's maybe an overstatement, but it, it's really sad to think about enjoying a really great meal by yourself, isn't it? Or I'll give you an example. I recently finished uh, remodeling one of my kids' bathrooms, and it looks awesome. And I love telling you how awesome it looks. And if you come over to my house, I want to show it to you. I want to go show you the bathroom where two of my boys do their thing because this bathroom is so great. I love it. Part of the joy of the thing is actually praising the thing and sharing it with others. And that's what the the entirety of heaven, the whole of the redeemed people of God, explode in joy and praise when they see that history has a meaning, that God has overcome this problem of his justice and his wrath and the cross and that the line is the lamb. And they've got to share it. They've got to praise. It's exactly that way for those whose citizenship is in heaven. When you discover that the lion who roars with power to make everything right is the lamb, who has borne the justice of God in himself in order to bring you peace, in order to bring you the love of God, the response has to be that we have to praise him. We have to praise him. And let me just say that that's exactly why we're here as a church. We exist to be a body of people who worship, who gather together on Sundays, uh, not, you know, to, not because the songs are great, the sermon is great. We have to praise, we have to worship, we have to respond. We gather in informal, informally and in small groups throughout the rest of the week because we have to find joy in sharing this joy with others. Listen, we cannot live, at least for very long, without a sense of purpose, without a sense of meaning. I know that it's not that cool <laughs> in the world. We live in this kind of cynical age where we want to say nothing really means anything. It just is what it is. Don't make it anything more than it needs to be. You know what? It's impossible to live that way. This past week, I had a conversation with someone who told me, 
for the last several years, I've been just pursuing work and work and work, and I've got to get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and I always feel like six months down the road, I will finally be happy. And what I realized is it will never be enough. I could get it all, and it wouldn't even be enough still. We cannot live without purpose. You know, we can tell ourselves it doesn't matter. We can distract ourselves with feelings of pleasure or a glass of wine. We can try to medicate it with entertainment. We can try to ignore the problem, but it just keeps cropping up again. I heard about a guy who, who bought a house, and in the corner of, uh, by his garage, there was this, like, stand of bamboo, and he didn't like it. And so he got a chainsaw, and he cut out the bamboo, and he took an axe, and he hacked the roots of it down. And then he poured like concentrated Roundup on the weeds, uh, on the roots rather. And then he covered it in a couple feet of gravel and he paved over it with concrete. And it was 18 months later when he came back out and he noticed a shoot coming up through the concrete. You cannot live without purpose. You can tell yourself that you can, but it keeps cropping up again. So my question for you is simply this. What are you going to do with that reality? You cannot live without purpose. What are you going to do with that reality? Friends, I want to encourage you to take a look from the control tower. God is on his throne. Despite every appearance to the contrary in the world that we live in, God is in control. He has a plan. He knows what he is doing. He is orchestrating the events of human history and each of our lives according to his purpose to bring uh, meaning and fulfillment. And at the center of his purposes for human history is a lion who roars with power, who is also a lamb who was slain in order to shed his blood for you so that you might experience the grace of God while he still remains just. The lion is the lamb. I wonder if you know him. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this breathtaking glimpse of what you're doing in the world and in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you um, would apply the truth of this passage to our hearts this morning. I pray that we would walk out of here um, renewed people because the Lamb is on the throne and He is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.